you think about the traditional front three, including Firmino, they were close to each other and they just seem systematically right now. Liverpool are not clicking. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Delighted to say Matt Williams is with us. Matt, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Alan. Really good, mate, as always. Um, Joe Schmidt picked a nice first game to be fully officially involved in. It's Argentina at home. I'm not saying it's a gimme. I'm not saying it's a gimme, but it's certainly, from a, a New Zealand perspective, it's one they will expect to win at least, right? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the, the championship last year was a wonderful championship uh, in that uh, because Australia and Argentina stood up and performed and of course the the Argentinians famously got their first win against New Zealand now all that whole tournament was held in Australia because of COVID um, which was very very difficult on on the South Africans the New Zealanders and and the Argentinians but uh, seeing this is in Christchurch uh, which is really a fortress for New Zealand. It's if Argentina were to win this, and I don't think they will, but if they were, it would be certainly not just a, uh, a turn-up. It would be one of the most extraordinary uh, outcomes in, in recent years. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. How long does it take for Schmidt's influence to become evident to us? And I guess it's kind of an unusual situation because he's, he's officially in the tracksuit and we saw the pictures of him uh, flashing around the world yesterday in his All Blacks gear but he has definitely had some involvement up to this point so it's not like it's um, it's not like he's just come off the street and is, is trying to inculcate new ways there's been an influence there and it's hard for us to gauge exactly what that is but how long do you think it's going to be before we can go that's the blueprint that are there the fingerprints of Schmidt on that game plan well it's an interesting one Joe look Joe's been I know this for a fact um, Joe's been involved with the planning of the national team all season, so right back to January. Um, because he, of his deep respect for Ireland, he asked not to be involved in the Irish series. He didn't want to oppose Ireland. Now, you know, he could have very well done that like Michael Cech has done uh, for, for Argentina against the Wallabies, and no one would have thought any difference. It just tells you so much about the man that he didn't want to do that. Um, but because of COVID and a few things, he came in. Look, I think Joe was always going to be involved somewhere in the in the process, and I thought he'd come back to the field at some stage. Um, it's interesting that I'm not so certain we'll see a radical change in how the team play. What I think we'll see is some more precision, and strangely, that's a word we do associate with New Zealand rugby. They, they are incredibly precise. Their skills are absolutely spot on. And that seems to have, or, or up until their game in um, uh, the first test at Eden Park, obviously they were, they were pretty good against Ireland, but at altitude at uh, Ellis Park, they were simply magnificent. But in those games, besides those two games, they've been very imprecise. They've dropped ball, they've missed tackle, things that we just don't associate with the national team of New Zealand. And I think that's where we'll see Joe start putting his... Uh, his mark on the team. I don't think we'll see a radical change in the structures. That's not what's going to happen. Um, but what we're going to see is, is a refinement of that. And I, I also think, I think it's a bit like when Paulie came into the national side in Ireland. I was saying to everyone, look, just just, just back off. Just let the guy, get, get, let him get settled in. Like if Joe came in this week and changed 20 things, they might lose. 
That is the worst thing you can do when you come in mid-season mid, uh, or, or midway through a series. You can't change a lot of things because the players can't adapt that quickly, especially the week of a test match. So we, we won't see a radical change, but we'll, 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 hopefully we'll see is Joe's insistence on detail, his, um, his demands for excellent execution, and, and his precision. And I think that's... Uh, and if we see a more precise uh, New Zealand side, that's, that's a worry for us all. The Springboks like to pull out the video from the RTE analysis of the November International where Ireland absolutely annihilated them. And uh, it's like, oh, this is the worst Springbok team of all time. And immediately after that, uh, Razzie gets tempted home and we know what happens. That ends up with a World Cup win. And so changing or getting a, a, a different World Cup uh, getting a different coach pretty close to the World Cup turns out can be a blueprint for success um, is there is there a concern in the rest of the world that adding Joe Schmidt's game smarts intelligence analysis discipline into a fairly talented pool of players um, suddenly catapults them back to being favourites for the World Cup again is, is that what we're talking about here? No I'm not I'm not saying. Look, New Zealand are never far from it, mate. You know, like anyone who says uh, since since uh, after 2007 when they lost in the quarterfinal and they radically changed the way they they treat their coaches, which is what we're seeing now. They, they kept uh, Graham Henry and Steve Hansen and Richie McCaw uh, in when everyone was calling for them to be kicked out after they lost in that quarterfinal to France in 2007. New Zealand have won two and, and made the semis of, of the third one. So New Zealand are not going to be too far away. And this is, you know, they've got a lot of talent. They've just had a bad run. And th- there's two sides to this, Joe. Everyone is over-exaggerating the problems in New Zealand rugby, especially the New Zealand media. They have been, I think, quite out of hand uh, in what they've been saying. And, look, New Zealand proved that last last game. Less before Joe Schmidt was there. That, that win at Ellis Park was one of the great performances of the last four or five years. They were simply magnificent at altitude. And again, I've said it on your show so many times, to win at altitude is such a hard uh, mission for teams that come from uh, sea level. It, it is just so difficult. Literally, there is less oxygen in the air. And when New Zealand went behind at, I think it was about the 60-minute mark, it might have been a little bit later, it might have been the 65th minute, I'm thinking, wow, at altitude, you've got no oxygen. You've already played your guts out. You're under pressure. I think the Springboks are going to win. And they found a way to come back and play magnificent rugby and win and win well and to win the trophy against New Zealanders between the two countries. So New Zealand are not far away from it. Will Joe Smith would be a an asset for any organisation. There is absolutely no two ways about that. And New Zealand have come out and said, finally showed some kahunas and come out and say, we're backing our coach. They left Ian Foster swinging outrageously for so long and appallingly and an appalling lack of leadership from the New Zealand Rugby Union. Now they've said, oh, no, we're backing him. I think Foster will be there to the the World Cup. What happens beyond that, I'm not so sure. Scotty Robinson, you know, everyone is hailing keeping Ian Foster there as a, a win for Australian rugby because I can tell you, uh, Scotty Robinson will be number one on Australian rugby's shopping list to, to take over from the Wallabies after the next World Cup, leading in to a World Cup in Australia. So there's a lot of machinations and, and processes to happen after 2023 in France. But let's stick with what's beforehand. 
New Zealand are not going to be easy, and Ireland have got them somewhere at the quarterfinal, I would suspect, or them or France, which is very tough, and they are not going to be the same side that they hit um, on the tour. They're going to be a very, very hard nut to crack. Is the expectation within Australia that there will be a different head coach so at the, the end of 2023? Uh, sorry, for, for the Wallabies? Yeah. Uh, interesting one. I think Dave Rennie's done a phenomenal job. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Um, I know I know very, very well two of his uh, assistant coaches. Scotty <clears throat> Wiseman, his attack coach, is um, a great old mate of mine. I coached Scotty at club level 100 years ago when we were both just starting out. Um, that was my first gig when I finished when I retired, Scotty's a fantastic coach, been assistant coach of uh, attack coach of England, and they've just brought Laurie Fisher in as a great old mate of mine as well. Obviously, former Munster coach Laurie's been brought in. Matt Taylor uh, resigned after the Argentinian uh, test. I, I don't believe that was the re- he wasn't sacked. I think he was just incredibly mentally fatigued after ten years at international level, and he just sort of had to get away for a while. And Laurie Fisher's come in. Laurie is an absolutely exceptional defence coach, exceptional coach of the breakdown. Players love him. He's, a, he's an older guy, and he just brings this extra dimension. So he's going to have a great staff there. Let's let's be really honest. Australian rugby and New Zealand rugby, the problems are totally different. Australian rugby is not a coaching problem. Australian rugby is a personnel problem, a lack of uh, high-performance development of players, uh, a lack of, key, of, of great players in key areas, especially at out-half. And that is not the coach's fault. That is a long-term problem with Australian rugby that I've been talking on your show and writing about and banging on doors about. I'll give you an example of the problem in Australian rugby. About 2015, I was back home and I said, no kids coming through at 10. I said, no, not one kid at the elite schoolboy level kicking with both feet. No one in the system down to the under-15s. I wrote to Australian rugby, New South Wales rugby, said, right, on Sundays, I'll organise a group of ex-Wallabies, some really good coaches of nines and tens. We'll take your kids. You nominate who they are. You identify them. We'll take them. We don't want any money. We'll even go to the country. We'll run, run sessions in the country and we'll try and develop the skills, crucial skills in our nines and tens that are coming through. Don't want any money. Don't want any recognition. We just want to help the system. So we put it all off, contacted all the guys. We all said yes. We went to Australian Rugby, New South Wales Rugby. They didn't even reply to the offer. They didn't even say no thanks. We're now in Australian rugby where, we've, where the, they're, they're just desperate at 10. They're moving around and jumping around at 10, trying to find an answer. They've got a couple of good kids at the Waratahs, but they're not ready. And so they've gone with Noah Leoso again. And Noah's a great young man, but he's also not ready. He's, he's, and they've got to put him out there. So it, they're in a huge, huge uh, problem because of players. New Zealand rugby have got more players than you can shake a stick at. They just can't get it together for the last few months uh, on the field. They did get it together brilliantly, quite magnificently at Ellis Park. So two totally situations. One is an outrageous expectation from the New Zealand media that you, New Zealand, you can't have a bad run. You can't lose four or five games. You can't do it. Australia are uh, two from nine, I think they are now. So Australian rugby and the Wallabies are in a are in a really deep hole, but that is not the coach's fault. The coach just has to deal with that, and I really do feel for Dave Rennie. 
it does feel with a lot of the nations, the tier one nations, that everything is a little bit cyclical. And when they need to get their house in order, they do it. Like Jer mentions, the shocker that the Springboks had in Dublin that night. And maybe, you know, ha- having a Lions tour coming down the track, maybe refocus the minds or just, you know, the fact that there was a World Cup coming down the track. Similar will probably happen with New Zealand before next year's World Cup. And it definitely feels that was the case with France looking ahead to their home World Cup next year. That They were like, right, we need, we need to get our house in order for 2023. Do you think that the problems in Australia run deeper to the point where they won't be able to use the World Cup or an upcoming Lions Tour to focus the minds and actually become maybe a, a top two, three nation in the world again? Yes, I, I think the, the, the problems in Australian rugby have been fo- uh, festering along for 15 years. And a lot of old heads like me have been trying desperately to tell boards and CEOs of the, of the grave problems that are facing Australian rugby. To be fair to the, the new um, chairman and CEO of Australian rugby, Andy Marinos is the chairman, uh, is the CEO, I'm sorry, now. And they have done a, a very, very good job the last 12 months. There's a new CEO at the Waratahs and a new coach, again, one of my former staff members when, when Andy Friend was with me at the Waratahs, uh, has, has come in onto into the coaching role there and done a very, very good job. That is going to take time, but the problem is not at the professional level. The problem is below the professional level and what we're doing and how we're coaching our kids to come through. Again, you're not seeing kids that can kick both feet. You're not seeing enough kids who are so brilliant with their hands, their footwork. We're just not coaching them the right skills at 14, 15, 16. So what France did to get this great crop of, uh, of players that we're currently seeing is when they won the World Cup and they knew the 2023 World Cup was theirs, they went four or five years back, so five years beforehand, and they started investing in their under 16. So I'm at my little club here, Narbonne, they gave them half a million bucks to build a gym. So every club that had a good academy, a centre deformation in France, got a grant to build a gym. They got extra, extra uh, grants for, for equipment. The coaches were, were, were upskilled. They really went out and said, we are going to do really well in our uh, national under-18s and our national under-20s, and we're going to identify eight, nine, ten kids that we're going to bring through for the next World Cup. And that's where Entomac and DuPont and Gregory Aldridge, that's where they came from, from this plan they had in place. Australian rugby needs the same. I can tell you, I've been trying to say that to Australian rugby. Whether they're doing it or not, look, I doubt it. I'm not sure that they're on to that right now because it is our high-performance department in Australia, and that's the one that worries about what's your production line. It's not necessarily worried about the Wallabies. That's that's the coach's job. It's the production line that leads into the Wallabies that is our problem and has been the problem for well over a decade. I want Australian rugby to do well because it's hanging on. Australian rugby is hanging on by its fingernails. It's hanging on with... Uh, uh, bums on seats, although they, they, it is reviving. I've got to give you know give them credit. They are trying. They are trying. The revival's coming. Club rugby, which is so important to to Australian rugby, which would be like the AIL, but it's different in in Sydney and Brisbane. That's all we've got. And the the Sydney and Brisbane commentators have really jumped in standard, and people are coming back to watch it. That's great. But we're not seeing that coming through and saying how the where's the Australian way of playing that we always had, and where are our great individuals? Where are our Mark Ellis? Where are our Michael Linus? Where are our Stephen Larkhams? Where are our George Grigans? The production line has stopped making them, and that's really really concerning, and that's what they've got to address. And I'm not so sure they are. 
what are their prospects this weekend and against South Africa? Because obviously, I, look, I haven't seen the the talk in the South African media yet about what team is going to be picked. Their squad is huge at the moment, and it's it's uh, bursting at the seams with quality, and they've been able to manage the growth of a squad that is clearly has an eye on on retaining their title Um, and it looks like they have a a big plan in place and it looks like they've got their house in order so what kind of a challenge do you expect them to pose for Australia? Staggering they've picked their best side Um, the laws of rugby and the way the referees interpret those laws uh, which I really don't like so many of them but the South Africans have picked out a perfect negative game plan to exploit all of these horrid parts of our game, slowing it down, constant cross-field kicking where you're contesting in the air, a rushing defence that is usually offside a significant percentage of the game, unbelievably giant human beings. It allows them to pick six on the bench, six giant human beings on the bench, which was never the intention of the laws and only two backs on the bench. It was never the intention of the laws, but they... The coaches, and I'm not blaming the coaches, this is the coach's job, their intellectual uh, uh, property and their intellectual uh, eliteness has allowed them to exploit and to see the loopholes in all those laws. And South Africa are playing a game plan that is really hard to beat. And you can see that, uh, A, against the Lions, that horrible series, but they were brilliant at the horrid. And against against, uh, New Zealand in that, that... that's test at Ellis Park we were just talking about. New Zealand should have won that game going away by, by a huge amount. But the negativity of the South Africans, that constant cross-field kicking, the, the way they flack at the breakdown, the huge human beings they can bring on through the whole game and their ability to slow the game down and bring it to their own advantage, their maul, their scrummaging for penalties, that is really, really hard to beat. It, you know, the negative is always, is always easier to put in than the positive. And Australia have got a few guys back. They, they did have a horrific run of injuries. There's still no Michael Hooper. But I, I, I really would love to see the Wallabies win. I can't see it happening. They have a crisis at 10. Um, as I said before, um, James O'Connor has been dropped from the scrub squad. Uh, they they brought back uh, uh, players of, of significant age. that They really don't know which way to turn at 10. And again, that's not the coach's fault. That's the system's fault. So I, I would really hope that the Wallabies can do well, but it's stacked against them because it's a really good Springbok side. They've got a game plan that is really hard to beat and they execute it quite brilliantly. And and then when they do make a break, they've got absolute lightning speed out in the flanks and a fullback. So the Wallabies are facing a really massive battle. When you refer to the, those loopholes that are being exploited, do you think that there needs to be a reaction to close up some of those loopholes? Oh, mate, um, I have been screaming at World Rugby to act. And and they don't even, World Rugby does not act. There's silence. There is absolute silence coming from World Rugby on all these topics, on why does a scrum take a minute and a half to pack and then collapses and we've got another minute and a half. So there's three minutes of bugger all. There's three minutes of us sitting around. You imagine, imagine going to the GAA uh, at Croker and just for three minutes the players are standing around. Like, everyone would be looking at each other. Going to Manchester United versus Liverpool, three minutes with the players just standing around doing nothing. Why? Why do we have to put up with that? Because there's a loophole in the laws. Why, why is it that we, we're just constantly seeing referees and TMOs stopping the game, 
you know, 25 penalties in a game. Why are we giving you – when I go for an intercept, what other game in the world where you go for an intercept in football or American football or basketball or, or GAA, you go for an intercept, doesn't work, hit your hand, it drops the ground, and you get sent from the field for 10 minutes. Like, it's just madness. How do we end up here? Eddie Jones said it after the test match in Sydney where, where the Wallabies got a player, Sinbin, who went for an intercept. If he had it taken the intercept, he would have gone the length of field, scored the try on the Wallabies, probably would have won that game. He goes for it, touch his fingers, he doesn't quite get it. He gets 10 minutes in the bin. Eddie Jones said after the game, he said the game's out of control. And it is. And world rugby is not moving because world rugby is this giant political organisation like the Olympic movement or, or uh, FIFA and you can't get people to agree. The South Africans are quite happy with the way the laws are, so they're not going to support it. The English probably aren't going to support it. So you can't get consistency around wanting to change. What's the problem? We've got a game now that goes for 80 minutes. The ball's in play for 35 minutes, sometimes 25 minutes. So what's happening for the rest of that time? It's absolutely staggering what's occurring in rugby at the moment. And, look, there are numerous ex-coaches and players around the world screaming for change, and we are getting none of it. And we're not only getting none of it, we're not getting any reaction at all. It's, it's like Rome is burning and we're getting zero comments from our governing body. It's a terrible, terrible state of affairs for the guy. I, I actually wonder if an outside alien influence might be the only thing that fixes it. And that's why it's been interesting to watch the transformation in Formula One, for example, when the venture capital money came in and they were like, we actually need to open this up to new people. We need to make it more entertaining. We need to be less elitist. We need everybody to understand what's going on. That's why I actually think the injection of capital from outside might force the game to go, why, why, are we, why do we make it so boring? Why do, we, why do we make it so difficult to understand? Why have we uh, made it so that the referee needs to remember 2,000 different data points if he's going to referee correctly the putting of the ball into the scrum? I, that's my one hope here, Matt. Well, well there's an interesting one there. Too. Rugby is the only game in the world where the person who is on your TV screen most in the game is a referee. That, I mean, that's outrageous. You want, NFL has six six officials on the field. They're, they're in your camera, as in the centrepiece of your camera, for maybe 30 seconds of a match if, if, the, if the head official comes on and he has to talk to the people to explain a decision. Now, in rugby, the referee's there more than any other player. How can the referee be there more than Johnny, Johnny Sexton? Like, it's just crazy. Now, I hope what you're saying is right. Um, I, I, I do doubt it. I do doubt it. I'm not so sure that the, um, the money coming into rugby thinks like that. What I'm much more concerned is the, the money coming into rugby wants to change competition structures and uh, that have lasted for uh, well over a century and have been very, very good, in particular Six Nations. I'm very concerned that South Africa will come into the Six Nations, which I think in the long run could be an absolute disaster for the okay. tournament. In the short term, probably make a few quid. But I'm not so sure. I, I hope you're right, Jeff. But somewhere, somewhere, it's got to happen. The other thing that may very well happen, especially with the World Cup coming up in America uh, after Australia, this is rugby's big chance to get into the states. They've got the MLR there, which is now, and it's going to a sixth season. It's sustainable. It's it's got good financial backing. It's going to stay. It's it's expanding. That's the major league rugby. It's a competition. Yeah. Professional rugby's been going. I certainly hope that that changes before we get to the States because if we get to the States and the game, it's like it is now, we will blow on one of the greatest opportunities rugby's ever had. All right. Matt, there's loads to talk about, as ever. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Great deal. Last one, Owen. I don't know if we'll talk again, mate. All the best. (laughs)
been a pleasure working with you over the years, mate. Good luck in uh, in South America and your travels. You too. Been, been a joy. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Take care. See you, mate. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.